Hello and welcome back to another episode of Overreacting. Today we are talking about the new set of twin girls that I have on my chest and the breast augmentation experience that some majority of us women actually choose to endure. I knew you ladies would have some questions, but I sure as heck and Bob didn't know we would have this many questions. But don't you worry, I have every answer to your question in the content laid out in this episode. If you didn't already see, Overreacting now has its own Instagram page. Go give us a follow at Overreacting Official, tagged in the bio of my personal account. Now, let's talk boobies. So for those of you who have been wondering and asking, maybe have been wondering but haven't asked, but have noticed, judging by my very mild change in appearance in my chest region, you are indeed correct. Your girl finally built up the funds and the courage to get a breast augmentation. This is something I have been wanting to do for over 10 years. My chest-wise was always something that I was insecure about, Especially given the fact that my rest of the rest of my body isn't exactly teeny tiny either. I just felt very disproportional in relation to the rest of my body. I hated being in a swimsuit. I felt very insecure in my romantic relationships. I was very frustrated trying on clothes if and when I couldn't be in a push-up bra. Needless to say, I was not comfortable at all in my own skin And this is something very tolling for someone to deal with for over 10 years. So needless to say, I am so incredibly happy that I made the decision to finally have this done. I can't wait to further explain the science, the money, and much more that goes on with breast augmentations. To kick things off, let's go over the actual definition of a breast augmentation, shall we? A breast augmentation, also known as an augmentation mammoplasty, is a surgery used to increase breast size, involving placing breast implants under breast tissue and or chest muscles. This is not to be confused with or used interchangeably with breast reduction or breast lift. Those are completely different things. Now that we know the definition of the topic of discussion, I'm gonna lead you through the journey of a breast augmentation in chronological order nonetheless. First up, picking a surgeon. Then comes your consultation, followed by your pre-op appointment and labs. Then prepping for the surgery, the surgery itself, post-op, protocol, procedure, and then last but not least, what the recovery period looks like. First up on the list, picking a surgeon. Listen, this is single-handedly the hardest decision one has to make. I did months and months worth of research on a plastic surgeon in the Austin area, and I did not settle for less than what I had hopes for. My advice on researching and finding a plastic surgeon that works best for you is three very easy, simple steps. Number one, Google plastic surgeon in insert your city name. Visit every single one of those websites that pop up on page one or two of that Google search. Google is very good about putting the most clicked on or relevant websites first meaning that the plastic surgeons that make page one or two are probably very good and recommended because they make the rankings. Number two, analyze the crap out of their website from head to toe. I'm talking visit every tab. Look at the overall appearance of it. Look at before and after pictures of their breast augmentations. 
If their website looks like shit, their work is probable shit. A true artist is a creative soul and they wouldn't let their website look like trash because that reflects bad on them. You can tell a lot about a surgeon too by their before and after pictures. There were some websites I remember being like, I don't like any of these boobs at all. They look awful. I would scratch that doctor off of my potentials list. The last piece of advice that I can give you, number three, look them up on Yelp or Health Grades. Read real patient reviews on each surgeon. These patients do not lie when it comes to telling their truth behind a computer or phone screen. Let me tell you, they are brutal. I ended up going with Dr. Ashley Gordon here at Restora Austin in Austin, Texas. 10 out of 5 stars, 1 million percent would recommend her. She has the most funny, personable bedside manner and is an absolute artist when it comes to the surgical work that she does. She doesn't belittle you or make you feel uncomfortable. She makes you feel absolutely beautiful. Tearing up just thinking about her. I just can't thank her enough for literally changing the way that I look and feel about myself. That is the most amazing job someone could have in my eyes is making someone love themselves with the surgery that you do. That's so awesome. I just had no idea it was possible for someone to truly understand what my goals were and make them a reality for myself. She never once shoved her opinions in my face, truly listened to what I wanted, and let me know if those goals I had were realistic or not. I remember her saying, honey, I would let you know if I thought you were going to look ridiculous, but I'm telling you right now, you are going to look freaking bomb. I am so excited for you. And I could tell she genuinely meant that too. Even better, she's had a boob job herself, so she personally knows what the experience is like. Once you narrow it down to maybe three plastic surgeons or even less than that, book a consultation with them. I know several ladies and men that meet with several different plastic surgeons before deciding who is a good fit for them personally. However, I just had this gut feeling that no matter how many other websites I went to, I could not stop thinking about Dr. Gordon. I was sold on her from the moment I stumbled across her. There was not one bad breast augmentation of the literal hundreds of before and after photos. Her website is so informative. It essentially has everything you would need to discuss at a consult visit besides trying on the implants themselves. So her website said a lot about her and the clinic that she practices at. So I went with her and I do not regret it. Highly, highly would recommend her. Once you have finally picked a surgeon and scheduled that consultation visit, you are going in for the consult. This is probably the most important part of the entire process. Your fate lies in your own hands, okay? There's a lot of decisions that have to be made. This is where you will meet face-to-face with the plastic surgeon of your choosing and their staff. Oftentimes, the consultation fee goes towards the surgery if you decide to proceed with it. For me, a consultation visit was about $150, and it did end up going to my overall surgery cost, aka the visit was technically free. They didn't even really charge me for the consult visit. It just went towards the surgeon's fees, which was awesome. Upon arrival to the consultation, the surgeon's nurse is actually the one who you are spending the majority of your time with besides the, pre- besides the procedure itself. Y'all will be 
absolute besties by the time you heal up from the surgery. I still to this day hit her up with some questions. She's probably sick of me. She will ask you what your goals are, ask to see photos of breasts that you do like versus don't. Most importantly, the ones that you don't (laughs) show you the different types of implants and let you feel them. And lastly, bring you the lovely bra that you stick either rice bags or the implants themselves into to get a feel for things. To wrap up the visit, she will then take the before pictures that the surgeon will be able to reference in your chart. This is literally where you take your top off, you're just in pants, you sit by a, or stand by a white wall and she takes your picture. Like a model, but a vulnerable model, okay. My plastic surgeon's office is actually one of the very few that has this machine that takes a picture of you and can produce a 3D 3D image of what you will look like with any breast size. Sounds cool, right? Well, I have a freaking hilarious story that I want to tell once we get to the pre-op section because that's when I actually got to see this finished 3D picture product. And oh my goodness, it, um, it did some things for me. Maybe not some good things, but we'll get there. After the nurse does all of these things listed prior, your plastic surgeon will finally make their arrival. He or she will again discuss your goals with you, breasts that you do and don't like, take measurements of your breast print. That's what my surgeon referred it to, which is how close your breasts are together or far apart they are, your starting size, if they are symmetrical, what have you, lots of different things. Basically, just the personal measurement of what your boobs already look like versus what you're going for. And then she will discuss with you if your goals are realistic for you. They will then do the normal legal things, such as explain the procedure to you, the risk and benefits, complications, etc. If you are still ready to proceed by the end of the consultation visit, then you will sign all of your surgery consents with the nurse, and they will then ship you off to the patient care coordinator to schedule your surgery. If you want to sit on your decision for a little while, every surgeon's office is different, but my consultation fee was covered for 90 days, and most offices have a similar policy like that. That's more than a reasonable time frame, if you ask me. They never want you to feel forced into doing something, and it is never too late to back out. Even if you get, you know, to the operating table and you're like, nope, never mind, I don't want to do this they won't do it on you. So I actually made the decision to book (laughs) literally 15 days from my consultation visit. She just happened to have an opening that soon. And without hesitation, I signed on the dotted line, paid my surgery in full. Wild to me, what's wild to me is coronavirus, the stay at home mandate literally went into effect the day after I had my surgery. I was truly my surgeon's last procedure from mid-March up until May 1st. Insane. Now that we have gone through the flow of the consultation visit, let's take a second and talk about implants themselves, the placement options of them, the routes of insertion, etc. Let's get into it. There are two types of implants, saline and silicone gel. Both implants are made of an outer shell of silicone, but their differences coincides with what their filling is made out of. Saline implants are filled with salt water, and silicone implants are filled with a cohesive silicone gel, much like Jello or a gummy bear. Think of that. It's very like squishy, 
and if you were to cut it, it's not going to rupture. It would just hold its shape. Pros of saline implants. Greater variability in size because they are filled at the time of surgery. So when your surgeon cuts that incision, it goes in like a deflated balloon, and then she will, he or she will fill it up with the saline solution. This also leaves you to have a smaller scar since, you know, we're only going in with a deflated balloon. That scar can be teeny tiny. The fill level is also adjustable because they're choosing how much fluid is going inside of that implant, which is cool. It's obvious if you have a deflation or a rupture, obviously your boob is going to be flat. So you're going to be like, well, this isn't right. (laughs) It costs a heck of a lot less than silicone implants heck of a lot cheaper guys. I'm talking like two to $3,000 less. And it has a physiological filler, meaning it's salt water. It's not going to hurt you if they rupture. That fluid will just reabsorb into your body naturally. Cons of saline implants, they look and feel more firm, aka they don't feel real. Think of Mean Girls where Regina's mom had his rock hard boobies and it hurts Katie when she goes up and hugs her. Yeah, that's that's saline implants. They hurt. And I could imagine that I would be just petrified if I had saline implants that I would literally pop my boob at any time. <laughs> that's why I didn't want them. Um, financial, financial assistance in case of rupture within 10 years only covers $1,200 versus $3,600, um, for saline implants versus silicone. So silicone, what all that big jumble of words meant is that silicone implants are covered more with insurance than saline are. And because saline is a liquid, saline implants actually ripple more than silicone. My mom, for one, has a breast augmentation with saline implants, and you can see sometimes where hers ripple or have kind of folded. You can definitely see it. Now, silicone implants, these are actually what I have. I decided, you know what, if I'm going to do this surgery, I am going to go, I'm going to get the top of the line implants. I got the, they're literally called gummy bear silicone gel implants. They look and feel so real. Not like I've had big boobs in, in, you know, since my entire life. So I don't really know what a boob feels like to begin with. So, I mean, just feeling, I'm literally feeling my boob as we speak. But if I had to imagine what a boob normally feels like, it's that. So I think they feel pretty dang real doesn't feel like I have a balloon in my chest that I'm worried about popping at any time either, which is really nice. And they're also very lightweight as well. They're not uh, liquid, so they're not weighing down. They're just a solid gel. They're really lightweight. So pros of silicone, they are softer and feel more natural compared to saline. Hello. If they do rupture, you can't really tell um the gel stays in place you can't pop them like you can a saline implant this is not really that it's a pro it's just more so you are much less likely to have a rupture and it's kind of impossible with especially with the ones that I have even if I were to quote unquote rupture it it's gonna hold its shape it's not going freaking anywhere so meh 
It has less rippling than saline implants. Financial assistance, we already covered this. It's going to be $3,600, which I think my implants themselves were $4,800. So, you know, if something were to happen to me, that's more than half of my implant costs themselves that are already covered. So that's really great financial coverage. Cons of these bad boys, ruptures are silent, but again, they're very hard to even rupture them in the first place. They are not as variable in size because they come in pre-filled 20 to 30 cc increments, aka a larger scar. So actually, silicone implants, yes, the scar is a little bit bigger. It's about an inch bigger, um, but they use this funnel technique, which essentially, for lack of better explanation terms, your surgeon will literally lube up this funnel, stick it into the incision, and then squeeze it like she's frosting a cake to shoot that bad boy into the pocket. Isn't that cool? That's how she explained it to me. And that's all I could think about as I was sitting there waiting for my surgery. The filler is not considered to be physiologic like saline is. Silicone gel can be very harmful and toxic to you, but again, very, very hard to rupture or cause a leak of this semi-solid fluid because it's not really a fluid. It's, it's solid. So implants can either be placed under the chest muscle, which we call submuscular or subpectoral in the medical world or on top of the muscle, but beneath the breast tissue, which is called subglandular. Your breast shape and lifestyle may dictate which implant position is best for you, but 99% of the time, placement under the muscle is preferred. And let's explain why. Submuscular pros and cons. Pros, less risk of implant visibility and palpability, aka a more natural look and feel. Decreased risk of hardened scar tissue around the implant itself, which is called capsular contracture, and less interference with futural mammograms. Cons. It is slightly more discomfortable in the first few days after surgery due to muscle spasms. Your surgeon is having to cut through a muscle. Your muscle is not going to like that. It's going to get a little angry and uh, spasm and throw a temper tantrum. It happens. That happens when you run too hard at gym and pull a muscle. You have muscle spasms as it's healing. So that's a normal process. I'd like to note that there's only one con of this and that's you're slightly discomfort, discomforted for a few days post-op. I think I can handle that. Subglandular pros and cons. Pros, there is only one pro and it's a decreased recovery time. Okay, not worth it. Cons, that's a long list that I'm about to read off. Increased risk of implant being visible or palpable under the skin. There's a very high risk of bottoming out or stretching of the breast skin due to the weight of the implant. A muscle is that can bear weight is not holding up your implant. It's simply only skin um, leading to sagging, stretch marks, what have you. Much higher risk of capsular contracture. So when you know, your breast is stretching, it's not healing properly, there's not enough weight-bearing muscle or weight-bearing skin, you're going to have a hardened scar tissue, which is that capsular contracture. And there's more interference with future mammography. I would be so afraid that I would pop my freaking implant having a mammogram. That thing presses down so hard. Last but not least, let's talk about 
uh, routes of implant insertion, which include where the incision is located. One being in the crease of the um, underneath the brass, it's called inframammary. This is the most common one around the bottom edge of the nipple. They literally put the implant through your nipple. I can't imagine a more painful experience or through the armpit, which we call axillary. My surgeon didn't even give me a choice. She only uses the inframammary route and she only does subpectoral or submuscular. And I can see why. Inframammary pros and cons. Pros consist of precise implant placement into the correct pocket and the lowest incidence of capsular contracture. There are no cons. I should just say inframammary pros. Periareolar or nipple. Pros and cons. Pros, it is a very well-hidden scar. Cons, this list is long again. Cons, highest incidence of complications, possible permanent nipple or partial breast numbness, may interfere with successful breastfeeding after surgery, and if revisionary surgery is needed, it may be necessary to make a new incision in the crease underneath the breast rather than use the original scar. Axillary pros and cons, pros being a well-hidden scar, that's it, just like the nipple route. Cons, precise placement of implant is very difficult. There is a higher incidence, again, of capsular contracture, higher likelihood of implant malposition where the imp- implant literally migrates to the side or into the armpit. That's terrifying. And a new incision is needed for surgical revision if need be. Lastly, implants are also available in several different profiles, which is simply just how, I like to say how round or full the implant is. So the base is more narrow to allow that volume to stick out of your chest more. It it kind of creates that push-up bra effect without wearing a push-up bra. That's the only way that I can kind of describe it in layman's terms. So the profiles are low profile, moderate, moderate plus, high profile, and ultra high profile. I myself, my surgeon didn't even give me an option. She only does moderate, and I was fine with that. Moderate is the most common one. Um, I, I did not want to look like I have fake boobs. I wanted to look as natural as possible, and the moderate route is the best way to attain that look. I have friends who have high-profile boobs, and they have a great rack, I will tell you that. Um, But it does look like they've had a boob job. That's all I'm going to say. You definitely didn't get those suckers from your mama. That's for sure. The profile of a breast implant refers how much an implant projects forward from the chest wall when standing. Implants of the same size that have different widths will produce different levels of projection. Implants with a smaller base width provide greater projection as compared to implants with a wider base. Low-profile implants are ones that are lower in profile and are relatively flat in appearance and minimally project from the chest. This type of implant is actually ideal for women with wide-set chest. So they their goal is not necessarily to create protrusion. It is to create more of a fullness on just a fuller chest, an equal chest. Um, Moderate profile implants tend to yield the most natural looking results, as I've previously said. 
as the name implied, they provide more projection compared to low-profile implants, but not as much as high-profile. They are typically ideal for women with small or narrow chest. That is me. I have small and narrow boobs, naturally. And then high-profile is extremely narrow at the base and sticks out. It is... (laughs) It literally looks like you cut half of a sphere. It projects so far out. Where moderate is more like a, not necessarily a teardrop, but it's definitely not a straight up ball, half of a ball. Um, But these yield the fullest and most rounded results, which may look a lot less natural on some people. But they are typically ideal for petite women who have a narrow chest wall. But I didn't go that route. Maybe I should have. I don't know. And that about wraps up the consult visit, talking about implants, the routes that the implants go through, where your incision is going to be located. So let's get on with pre-op. Your pre-op appointment is typically one to two weeks prior to your scheduled surgery date. For me, it was literally a week before my surgery, since you know your girl uh, (laughs) scheduled so fast. At this appointment, you will sign the remainder of surgical consents if there's any left, review the implants and the size that you want. If you want to retry them on, just ask. You might even change up your size. That's perfectly fine. They have no problem with that. Have pre-op lab work done. And lastly, view that 3D picture. Funny story time. Are y'all ready? I had the opportunity to do the infamous 3D virtual picture that would show me just what I'm going to look like post-op. They have you stripped down to just your pants and you have to be all vulnerable, topless in front of a stranger with mosquito bites for boobs. You then stand in front of this very intimidating machine that is essentially just a very big camera. What they didn't tell me is, one, the flash is so fucking bright, I think my retinas are permanently damaged. And two, it takes a picture of you from all angles. Okay, like 360. It looks awful. So when that flash went off, I flinched so hard. I made my double chin come out. I hunched my back. It was it was just all caught in the one picture that I get. No one told me to not eat like it was Thanksgiving either before going into this appointment. So my gut was about as large as the earth itself as well. I started crying and I mean hysterically panicking, having a little bit of a breakdown with the nurse when she showed me my picture. And I just remember saying to her, um, I'm going to need more than just a boob job. I need lipo now too, apparently. No one is even going to see how awesome my boobs are because I'm so fat and gross. She was just a great consoler to say the least. I was good and back (laughs) to normal as panic turned into excitement by the time I was walking out the doors after that. And last but not least, the nurse discussed with me my post-op medications, my pre-op preparation care, and wound care for the first 24 hours after surgery. And that about wraps up pre-op. It was just a really quick, short, easy visit. I had a little bit of an ego boost. I mean, not ego boost. I had a little bit um, of an ego downer and my confidence was in the toilet for all of about five minutes, thinking I was a fat, double-chinned whale, but we were all good. We were excited, ready for surgery. 
Now let's talk about what I had to do in preparation for this surgery. And it actually starts two weeks before that. So I barely made the cutoff here. Your doctor will want you to stop taking any type of blood thinners, which include alcohol, NSAIDs, which are ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin, aspirin, Aleve, some of the common ones that I can think of off the top of my head, fish oil or omega-3s, vitamin E, turmeric, and herbal supplements. They also like for you to stop taking hormonal birth control if you're able to for one month's time meaning two weeks before and two weeks after, because it does put you at an increased risk for develop, developing a blood clot. Did I do this? No. Shh, don't tell them I didn't do that, and I survived. Make sure that you have had your pre-op labs completed by that one-week mark prior to surgery so they can have your results on time. Lab work for me included a complete blood count that looks at white blood cells, red blood cells, and anemic factors. Helps gives that that surgeon an idea if you're going to be okay and able to tolerate the surgery. Um, A comprehensive metabolic panel, that includes electrolytes, random glucose, liver, kidney function. Again, that's going to tell us how well you're going to do through a surgery. And last but not least, I had to take a pregnancy test. God forbid I'd be pregnant and I can't get my boobs. I would be furious. And they also told me that I had to secure a responsible adult to accompany me to and from the surgical center and be willing to stay with me for three days because they will need to know that person's name ahead of time. Shout out Gam. She came and stayed with me, took care of me. And even though I was like half conscious that entire time, she was so sweet. Um, And then this is probably the most important preparation for the freaking surgery, pick up any and all of your post-op medications. Don't wait until the day of surgery to try and pick up your meds. You will need them the second you wake up. I promise. I have patients all the freaking time call my office and say, there was a problem with picking up my meds and I'm in so much pain. Help me. Well, I'm sorry, ma'am. Your meds were sent two weeks ago and you didn't choose to ensure that they were in your hands before going under the knife. That's on you, girlfriend. Some of my medications were not covered by insurance, so I ended up having to pay out of pocket for them, but nothing was too crazy, ridiculously expensive. I think the most expensive medication was one of my pain meds, and it was like $30, and that was one. I was like, "Mm -mm, we're we're just going to have to pay it. I'm not going without that one. Medications that were associated with my surgery included a nice little drug cocktail of anti-nausea medications, mandatory antibiotics, and pain medications. My anti-nausea medications, were one was called Amend. It's used specifically for nausea caused by anesthesia itself, and it is to be taken two to three hours prior to the surgery. And then Phenergan, which is taken every six hours as needed for post-op nausea. Mandatory antibiotics The one that I used was Keflex. There are other antibiotics that obviously you can use if someone has an allergy or doesn't tolerate a medication well. This prevents infection from the surgery itself. It is taken every six hours for seven days following surgery. And thank God with antibiotics, they called me out Diflucan, which is an antifungal medication that would have prevented an antibiotic-induced yeast infection. That saved my life. My pain medications included gabapentin, actually helps with nerve pain. It is awesome. I love that drug. 
and it was taken nightly for three nights after my surgery. Valium, which is a <laughs> Valium, diazepam, love you. It is a muscle relaxer, actually an anxiety medication, but it's a muscle relaxer to prevent muscle spasms. I had to take it every eight hours for three days, then just as needed. Next one that I had was called Celebrax. It's an anti-inflammatory pain medication that helps reduce inflammation. I had to take it the night before surgery, the night of surgery, and then twice a day for four days following surgery. I think that was the pain medication that costed $30, but it's an awesome pain medication. So I was willing to pay out of pocket for that. And then last but not least, oxycodone. It's a very strong pain medication. It's to be taken every four to six hours as needed not a definite. And they give you very little amounts of this controlled substance. I'll tell you that much. My OR and anesthesia fees were also due in full at this appointment, but I had already paid for them. I think that it's important that I note that what's actually eligible for a payment plan is only the cost of the implants themselves, your surgeon's fees, your post-op medications, lab testing, and pre- and post-op appointments. Not the operating room or anesthesia fees. Oftentimes they are using a surgical center and a group of anesthesiologists that are not affiliated with the plastic surgery center itself. So their payments are separated, not just from, you know, your surgery's fees or your surgeon's fees. They're also separated from each other. I had to, I forgot what the, oh, I can't remember what the name of the surgery center that I used was, but I had to pay them X amount of money, and then I had to pay Austin Anesthesiologist Group, I think is who I use, and I had to pay them a separate fee. So I had three different payments to three different people, but I had paid everybody. I was all ready to rock and roll. I think my OR and anesthesia fees were roughly about $800 together, so that's like a minimum cost up front that you would be responsible for if you are wanting to do a breast augmentation. All right, all right, all right. We have officially arrived at the day of surgery. And man, it was a long freaking day. <laughs> My surgery was initially scheduled to be at 8 a.m., but it got pushed not only once, but twice. I ended up being scheduled at 1.30 and my surgery was not actually until 3.30 due to patient complications in the procedure right before me. How great is that? I was literally sitting there for two hours being like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. I just want to eat and I can't. But since my surgery was scheduled for 1.30, I woke up early as shit at the ass crack of dawn at 5 a.m. sharp and I ate a light breakfast since you can't have anything by mouth for eight hours prior to having any type of surgery due to the risk of aspiration or vomiting into your windpipe. This includes gum, mints, hard candy, cough drops, for the love of God, water, coffee, tea, you name it, can't have shit eight hours prior. So that would have been 5.30 where I can't have crapola anymore. So I went to town on some muffins. I remember that. They were raisin brand muffins. If y'all haven't had those, aren't actually delicious, but I went to down it ate like five of them. They were so good. Um, I was only allowed to take the amend nausea medication with literally a drop of water about two hours before my surgery as well. That's that anti-nausea medication that helps with anesthesia associated nausea. After I ate my breakfast, 
your girl went back to bed until about 9 a.m., I'm not going to lie. Then my sweet little grandma, who came into town to stay with me, and I went on a very long walk around my neighborhood to get some exercise and help promote good circulation for surgery. Yeah, go Nurse Kendra. Before the time, or by the time that we made it back to my house, it was about 11 a.m. We were supposed to be at the surgery center at about one hour prior to my scheduled surgery time so that they could, you know, do all the things that they needed to do. They like for you to take a shower with a special antibacterial slash surgical prep solution called Hibiclens. Now, thanks to the hysteria with the pandemic going on, the same psychos that bought all the toilet paper also bought every single tube of this surgical prep. And for what? What do y'all need that for? Oh my gosh, I was so mad that day. I'm still mad to this day. I had to call my surgeon's office and ask what I could use, and they told me that I could just use Dial antibacterial soap. Thankfully, a little sweet gam came to the rescue, and she actually had some antibacterial soap that I used. So literally was bathing with Dial. That was weirdest shower I've ever taken in my life. Um, so I, you know, took my antibacterial shower put on my button-up pajamas. They ask you to wear loose, comfortable clothing, preferably that opens up in the front versus goes over your head because it's very hard to lift your arms above your head following surgery. They also do not want for you to wear deodorant, makeup, perfume, or lotion on the day of your surgery. It can interfere with the skin during the procedure itself. Also had to wear my glasses since you aren't allowed to wear contacts either. So I looked real stinking cute walking into that surgical center. I looked like I had just woken up when actually that was not the truth. After my shower, my grandma had herself a little lunch while I sat there salivating and having a pity party. When she was finally finished eating and torturing me, we headed to the surgery center a little earlier than planned because being on time is being late for us. And I know there are listeners, there has to be, that are just like us. Why are we the way that we are, guys? On our way up the elevator, we came across this very handsome man in scrubs and we were just kind of casually chatting with the friendly dude. Ended up going to the same surgical center as he did and I mentioned to my grandma, wow, how wild would it be if, you know, we end up actually going into the same lobby and he ends up being on my case. That would be such a small world. Once I arrived and got checked in, they led me back to this little personal waiting room that has a very comfortable recliner Heated blanket, built a massager, great stuff. I had to strip down to my underwear, put on a surgical gown, and take yet again another pregnancy test. Can can you imagine getting to that day, taking a test, and being pregnant, and you can't go for it with your surgery? Oh my god, I would literally flip that surgical table over out of anger if that were to be me. And let me tell you, I can see why they give you a heated blanket. It was so freaking cold in that surgical center since they have to keep it cool for the surgeries my nipples could have cut rocks they were so freaking hard it was freezing once i was back from the bathroom my nurse started my iv got some warm iv fluids going they had me take another set of medications with literally yet another drop of water it and then i had a pill stuck in my throat and they wouldn't really let me have any water it was terrible And then she turned on my massage feature on the chair. Then little Gam got to come back and wait with me for the next two and a half hours. And that's when the nurse, you know, kept coming in. I'm so sorry that 
the surgery is taking longer than I expected. There are some complications going on. I'm so sorry. And, um, you know, at this point, I was so hungry. I was just beyond the point of hunger. I was just numb. I, I know y'all have been there before. I'm not the only one that has experienced this. I was just like, whatever. <laughs> as long as I have my surgery today, that's all I care. We were sitting there chatting, relaxing, when the curtain gets whipped back, and there stands the same handsome man from the elevator. He ended up being my anesthesiologist. And I don't know who was more here for it, me or my grandma, because let me tell you, wow, he's handsome. He explained all of my medications he was going to be using, verified if I had any allergies, talked about previous anesthesia experiences, and answered any questions or concerns that I had. After he left to go get everything set up, panic started to set in yet again, thinking about the fact that I was about to be topless, unconscious, in front of this beautiful man. Dr. Gordon then came in after the surgery before mine finally wrapped up. She drew this those little stereotypical black surgical lines on my chest that show where she's going to need to cut, talked about the procedure itself, and then gave me a big old hug before going back to the OR. I remember being so hyped in that moment the realization of this is something that I have been wanting my entire life and it's about to happen I was just so ready to go I was so excited my nurse came to get me and to walk back to the OR and I looked back and I said to my grandma just know if I die on the table getting my boobs I went out one happy girl don't worry about me once I was in the OR Another nurse and my anesthesiologist were both inside setting everything up. This is where they made me drop my gown and climb up on the surgical table. So for a mental picture, if y'all are needing this, I'm in a nude colored thong and that's it. Climbing up, fat rolls exposed, and I am in front of two strangers. One of these strangers is a very hot man. I guess he could tell that I was trying to, you know, be modest and cover myself and he ended up saying, Girl, my face is about to be all up in you, all up by yours and near your chest, making sure you're breathing and intubated correctly. So don't be shy. Yeah, like that makes me feel better knowing that that your face is about to be right near mine. Anyway, I'd like to be put under now. Thank you, sir. One of the last things I remember was the nurse asking where my IV was located, and you know, just nurse me answered, "Oh, it's in my right AC, which is anti-cubital. It's in my elbow." Um, in the whole room, all of the staff that was in there just froze. And my anesthesiologist goes, oh yeah, she's a nurse, by the way, treat her like a queen. Not saying that treating other medical professionals, that they get better treatment than anybody else does, but there is some found respect and admiration for getting the privilege of taking care of another healthcare professional. And they did, they treated me like a queen. After we calmed down from laughing about that, the room started spinning and I could feel myself getting very sleepy and hot man doctor then told me that he would see me when I wake up. Did I have a dream about him? I don't know. And the next thing I know, I was waking up in the post-op area. So yeah, as I was saying, the next thing I knew, I woke up not just in the post-op area, but I was fully clothed. So and in a bra as well. So I don't know if they dressed me while I was still unconscious. I don't know what happened, but impressive. Yeah, I woke up to someone saying my name, playing with my feet, opened my eyes to both my surgeon and my anesthesiologist, both smiling, asking how I was feeling. Um, the very first thing that I did, 
was not answer their question. I jolted up and looked down my shirt to see my brand new girly pops swollen and very angry. Honestly, after that moment for the next like 12 to 14 hours, it's a little bit blurry, kind of in and out of, of mental. I I don't even know the word I'm looking for. I'm I'm spacing out. I was kind of in and out mentally for the next 12 to 14 hours. Thanks to all the drugs I was on. Um, I remember laying there, then going down in the wheelchair to the car and being in god-awful rush hour Austin traffic, so nauseous in the passenger seat. I had my eyes closed and was very focused on breathing and trying not to throw up. Why your girl didn't bring those post-op nausea medications with her? I don't know, okay? I was that annoying patient that I was referencing earlier. (laughs) Once we finally made it back to my apartment... I was on and off sleeping for the next 14 hours or so, only waking up to my alarms to take my medications. I think I actually slept from 6 p.m. until 9 a.m., literally only waking up to put pop a pill in my mouth and then hitting the pillow again. My grandma did tell me that I was FaceTiming my friend Liz, who was on a previous episode, and I was eating, but I was falling asleep with a plate on my chest sleeping facetiming with my eyes closed (laughs) i don't remember doing this at all but that's pretty funny after my long power nap if you will i felt awesome when i woke up that next morning my pain was well controlled i had an appetite my nausea was gone i ended up going on a little walk with my grandma again around the neighborhood but this time i only made it to the end of my block i can't tell you guys how winded i was it was instantly like I was in the worst shape of my life. It was awful. My chest muscles were just so tight. I couldn't breathe like I used to. Over the next week or so, I stayed on top of my pain medications. I took them even when I wasn't in pain. And that is my best advice. Take it even if you don't need it. If your pain is well controlled, your body can focus on healing when it's not having to waste energy on telling you that it's in pain. After 24 hours, I was able to take the top part of my dressings off of both my incisions and take a shower. I actually put a swimsuit bottom on, sat in the bathtub, and let my grandma wash my hair, just like old times when I was like three years old, sitting in a sink like that in a diaper, Um, because I could not, for the life of me, lift my arms above my head without it hurting, and you're really not supposed to lift them for two weeks above your head anyway, and I can see why. One, it's painful, but two, it can open your incisions. Pain is not so much the post-op problem. It's actually drowsiness because that is a side effect of a lot of the medications that you're taking. And that really, I mean, beyond the the 24-hour mark, that's really the post-op period. Other than that, it's recovery, and I'm still in the recovery process. So we'll move on to that next. So during my recovery period, COVID was in full swing at my one-week post-op visit. So it actually had to be done via Zoom. I felt like I was sexting, but with my doctor, it was very promiscuous stuff, let me tell you. This turning point in my recovery period was actually such a tease because I had been doing so well. I thought I was invincible. I started lifting things that I probably shouldn't have been lifting. I was lifting my arms above my head. 
Like I wasn't supposed to. I was waking up on my side. You're supposed to be sleeping on your back. So was I being a good patient? Not really. And fast forward a week and a half later, as I was reaching above my head to get a coffee cup on the top shelf, I just had this unbearable itching sensation under my right boot. I can't, it was like if I wasn't going to scratch it in that moment, I was just going to combust. I don't know. I was just going to lose my mind. So as I pulled back the tape, it was instant just goop on my fingers. And I looked down and it was bright red blood, ran immediately to the bathroom, uh, wiped off the goop. And there was about like a three to four millimeter opening on the outermost corner of my right breast incision. And I honestly, I couldn't tell if just my external sutures had opened because they're dissolvable um, or my internal sutures where my chest muscle had been sewn up was. I couldn't tell. Usually if you're internal sutures rip and you and the implant is exposed it's like a dark dark hole and that's kind of what it looked like in one particular area so I panicked called my plastic surgeon on her day off on a Saturday morning and I remember her saying only because you're a nurse and with the virus going on I want you to do this at home Remember capsular contracture that I kept referencing earlier? We were trying to avoid this. The last thing we wanted was for bacteria to get inside of where the implant is and cause an infection from the inside out. What would happen is essentially that my immune system would literally attack the implant because it would think that it is the source of the infection, not the bacteria, when that isn't true. So I had to drive myself to Target, one-armed, keeping my right arm locked by my side because if I lifted it too high, blood would start coming out onto my shirt. I was lactating, but lactating blood instead of milk, if you will. I was put on several heavy, heavy, hefty-duty antibiotics, one of which is typically only used in tuberculosis patients, and it is awful on your liver. I probably will have liver failure at some point in my life because of this medication. And I not only had to take one round of it, but two. And honestly, I'm thankful for it because I ended up having no additional complications from my surgery and it could have been a lot worse. I probably caught that incision opening right when it happened. So it could have been a lot worse. Typically at three weeks, you were cleared to do light exercise, which would be going on long walks, doing lower body weights, yoga, essentially kind of avoiding upper body exercises. However, because my incision opened, I was not allowed to do this for two more additional weeks to let my incision heal up fully. Then at six weeks, you are fully cleared to do anything, which running upper body weights, However, because my recovery process was much longer than a normal person's, it was more like eight weeks before I felt comfortable doing anything of that nature, meaning it was painful if I tried running or using my muscles to lift. I was also just petrified, I'm not going to lie, that I was going to burst open my incision if I bounced my melons too hard running. So I was just not comfortable doing that. At six weeks as well, 
Your muscles should no longer be uptight or having spasms, meaning that your implants should have what we call dropped and fluffed and look how and look how they permanently will look from that point forward. So typically, I mean, if you were to see pictures of me as soon as I got home from my surgery, my implant was touching my collarbone. Now the top of my implant is probably below my armpit. So it's about three inches lower than it typically was at the surgery. So one, that muscle is extremely angry. It's tight. Around three weeks as well, you're going to start massaging to relax that muscle. I'm taking Valium to at nighttime to relax it. And then once you know, the muscle relaxes and it kind of settles into that breast pocket, it does what we call fluff, which is where it allows the breast to take the shape of the implant versus it kind of being boxy from, it's more rounded versus boxy from the chest muscle. So it drops into place, it fluffs, and they look normal. And your stars typically, your stars, your scars typically start to fade around three to six months, which is where I am now. I'm almost at the four-month mark. They honestly just look like a scratch that's about an inch and a half in length, and they're a dark red, light purple color. I also have stretch marks out the ass around my nipples, but I highly, highly recommend using bio oil for even, you know, breast augmentations or for you pregnant moms suffering from stretch marks, which you can find from Target. It has made them virtually disappear and is great for scars as well. Now, I thought my scars looked great until a guy the other day at my pool asked if I knew that I had a bad scratch under my chest. Can't tell you how awkward it was explaining to him that I was not only aware, but that it was my incision, not a scratch. And I don't think it was near as awkward for me as it was for him. That's all I'll say. To end things, let's bring back my old segment, Am I Overreacting?, where I address any questions that maybe weren't covered in the topics already previously discussed. So starting off, someone asked me what my starting cup size was, my ending size, and what my goals were going into the procedure. I actually started out a 34A or a very, very small B, Dr. Gordon's words, not mine, And now I am a pretty full 34C or even maybe a small D. Um, I kind of stated this earlier. My goals going into this, I always for my entire life, I always wore the Victoria's Secret bombshell bra, which made me a C cup when I wore that bra at all times. Um, It was just an ultra push-up bra, essentially. And I went in there and I told her, I I just want to look proportional with the rest of my body. I don't want someone's first opinion of me when looking at my chest is, oh, she has fake boobs. I don't want someone to know that I have fake boobs. I want the only people to know are my friends. And they only know because I told them that I had a boob job. So she was like, that, that is completely doable I showed her, you know, the before and after pictures that I liked, what I did not like, and she thought that not only were my goals reasonable and realistic, but that they were very attainable for me and my 
um, natural breast print or my natural breasts themselves. So were my goals achieved? Absolutely. I'm very satisfied with what I have. Um, this kind of branches into the next question. Am I happy with my results? Would I do anything differently? I am absolutely in love with them. If I could do anything differently, I would maybe go 50 to 100 cc's, just a little bit bigger. I got 410 cc's put into both breasts. My right breast is a little bit bigger than my left, but she said when she put in a smaller implant in my right one, they didn't look symmetrical. Um, so I have the same size in both. Um, so if, if, if it were up to me, I would go 460, maybe even 500, 510. Um, I just thought that number was astronomical, astronomical when I was trying on the implants with that little bra at my consult visit. Um, but what they don't tell you when you go under the muscle, you kind of lose a little bit of volume or profile. Like what we were talking about, that muscle weighs down on the implant, kind of flattens it out a little bit. So I think if I would have gotten a little bit extra volume, I would have, I would have had that volume that I want. I lost a little bit. Um, and moderate versus profile. I wonder if I would have, I don't have as much cleavage as I like. I have good cleavage if I wear, you know, a tight shirt that pushes them close together, but naturally I don't have as much fullness on top that I would have liked. Um, so maybe a high profile implant would have given me those results, but there's only so much your surgeon can do, um, because your natural breasts themselves determine what your implants are going to look like. Essentially, there's only so much an artist can do. Um, let's see here. And then I got asked, what are the pros and cons of having a breast augmentation for myself personally? Pros, I had an instant increase in self-confidence and just the ability to be comfortable in my own skin, which is something that I have never experienced before. And another pro, I have literal perfect boobs without having to wear a bra. It's a great thing. Cons, I cannot run to this day like I used to, and I'm completely healed. It's still, it's just a weird sensation. Not that it hurts. It just, ugh, it's just a nagging feeling when I'm running and they're bouncing. No, I, I used to run miles on miles on miles. Now I can't even run a quarter of a mile without, just can't stand it. I can't lay out flat on my stomach either. It, it feels like I'm laying on top of a, a water balloon that will not pop. So you know, we were talking about implants that I don't have saline. It doesn't feel like I'm going to rupture them. It just kind of feels like not necessarily a ball, but just it's not comfortable to lay on your stomach. That's all I'll say. And the major con, boob sweat. I have never had this before in my life. <laughs> this is new and it is bad. You guys, I have little like sweat rings on my boobs now that we're in summer. It's disgusting. Last question, can you breastfeed in the future? Absolutely. The only problems you would face with breastfeeding are if you went with the periareolar route and or subglandular placement. It can interfere with the nipples and breast tissue. I took care of plenty of moms on the postpartum unit who had awesome tits and it was because they had had their boobs done and they had no problems breastfeeding at all. 
Well, guys, if a breast augmentation interests you, you still have questions that weren't addressed in this episode, feel free to reach out to me. If not, I will catch you next, next Monday. And I'm going to try to bring on my friend. We're going to keep this boob trend going. Be talking about mammograms, BRCA testing, and breast cancer. We'll see you then.